Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, April 17th, 2018. Hope you're sitting down. It's going to be a little bit of a lengthy program, probably one of the more important sermons I've ever reviewed, and I never say things like that lightly. If I'd say that, it it is. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down. <sighs> Stop. Open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, <gasps> self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put out for consumption by the average evangelical, is toxic, it's poisonous, it's a twisting of God's Word, it's teaching for shameful gain, things that ought not to be taught. It makes God's Word void by mangling it and things like that. And the best way to put it is is that the there's nothing great about the great apostasy, but it seems to be in full swing. And so uh, what we're trying to do here is a little bit of a warning work so that you are not schnookered, bamboozled, hoodwinked, and um, deceived in any way that could jeopardize your <clears throat> bank account and or eternal salvation. Things like that. That's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. So at the very top of the program, noted that to today's episode, mm -hmm, yeah, probably one of the more important sermons I've ever reviewed. And you're thinking, why are you going to talk? lead off with the sermon review? Because this is one of those ones you don't want to miss. Unfortunately, it's long. And the name of the sermon is... The Jesus Movement versus Institutional Christianity. Mm -hmm. The Jesus Movement versus Institutional Christianity. And it was delivered on the 9th of October, 2005, by none other than the, uh, well, Dr. Michael Brown. And gotta tell you, uh, you're gonna need your, um, your NAR decoder ring to be able to, 
get some of the concepts here. I, I, yeah, after listening to this thing and re-listening to it, I'm fairly convinced he's engaging in NAR-ish type code talk. Now, to help us understand and to see that, we're going to do a little bit of uh, work before we get to the sermon review. And by the way, since it's a long sermon review, my hope, oh boy, I don't know if I'm going to pull this off. My hope is that we're actually going to start the sermon review in hour number one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I rarely do that, but the, considering the length and the importance of this particular sermon, yeah, we're going to, you know, <laughs> I want to get to it sooner rather than later, but we need to do a little foundation work. So in order to do our foundation work, we're going to start kind of in a weird place. And that's the only way I can describe it. It is a wee bit of a weird place. We're going to start with the um, YouTube channel of Throne Builders. Now, if you don't know who Throne Builders is or are, um, the Throne Builders, uh, um, they are featured on our dumpster fires. Yeah, uh, Tom Shirley and his wife are regularly featured in our Prophecy Bingo segments that we do in our Dumpster Fire episodes on our YouTube channel. This is the first time that we're actually going to sit down and uh, listen to uh, Tom Shirley's teaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a reason why I want to do that, because in this particular video, we're going to hear him discussing uh, or giving an introduction to office gifts. Office gifts. We'll do a little bit of work noting that actually um, the uh, th- that pastors are in an office. That's an office established by the Word of God, by Christ himself. And, uh, and we're going to hear Tom Shirley kind of spewing an NAR-ish type ecclesiastical concept. This is a, a fellow who I don't think is accountable to anybody for anything for his theology, and he's got some really, I mean really bad anthropology basically claims that we are one with God the Father the same way Jesus was. Yeah, that was in our last Dumpster Fire bit video. But So consider that as kind of like easing into the topic. We're going to ease into it. Um, and so we're going to be like in the NAR like the whole episode, the best way I can put it. Then we're going to do a little bit of reading. I'll, I'll read out a couple of things for you. Uh, uh, written by C. Peter Wagner, because I want you to hear, again, this concept, you know, some of these uh, NAR concepts. And one of them is this over and again emphasis on the new wineskin versus the old wineskin. You know, the old wineskin's got to go. God's bringing a new wineskin. This is really indicative of NAR-type talk. And in hearing Wagner um, say these things the way he said them, it'll at least mentally build a frame for you to catch some of the things that Michael Brown is going to do in uh, our, well, when we get to the sermon review. And then to kind of round out our pre-work for our sermon, we are going to uh, revisit Lou Engel's Third Awakening sermon. I actually reviewed this thing a while back, but this uh, Lou Engel's Third Awakening sermon, and we're going to hear him claiming that he heard the voice of God, the Lord, the Spirit, telling him that uh, just as there was a John the Baptist movement, there is coming a Jesus movement. And yeah, Lou Engel is one of these NAR guys, and so in hearing him speak in this way, 
uh, it, it'll, I think, help us understand a potential double entendre that Michael Brown is engaging in in the sermon that uh, we will be listening to from 2005, you know, you know, the Jesus movement versus institutional Christianity. Uh-huh. Institutional Christianity, bad, bad. And uh, the Jesus movement, good, good. Yeah, it's, and really weird stuff. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, yeah. Commercial breaks today could be in odd spots. That's the only way I can say it. So since we're going to be under the uh, rubric of uh, examining and looking at concepts related to the NAR this entire episode, let's go ahead and do this. Chief, babe, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain. It's Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. They're laboratory mice. They're genes and they're sliced. They're Pinky. They're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. All right, so first up, we're heading over to the uh, YouTube channel of the Throne Billers, and uh, Tom Shirley is going to introduce us to the office gifts. And uh, this will at least begin our discussion today, although he's kind of slipshoddy, NAR-ish. You'll kind of get the point. Here we go. Here's Tom Shirley. Hey, everybody. It's Thomas Shirley here with Throne Builders, and I wanted to do a short teaching series on what is commonly referred to as the office gifts that are listed in Ephesians chapter 4, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. And uh, I believe that God has given me some very specific understanding about this, something that... Yeah, he, he receives direct revelation from God, which is why he shows up in our prophecy bingo segments on Dumpster Fire. Not taught. I've never heard anyone teach this before. Uh, but yeah, I got to back that up. Uh, by the way, that's a red flag. If you ever any, hear anyone say these types of words, then you know you got a problem. Listen again. And teacher. And uh, I believe that God has given me some very specific understanding about this, something that is not taught. I've never heard anyone teach this before. Yeah, that generally is a sign that uh, what he's going to teach you is um, an innovation. You see, Christianity is a faith that has been once delivered to the saints, mm -hmm. and uh, there are no new doctrines, none, no, no, not at all. And so the fact this guy is openly claiming that, I, you know, I've never heard anybody teach this, that's a sign you got somebody teaching heresy. But I think that it will help you uh, be free of a lot of the condemnation and fear that goes into a lot of the teaching about spiritual gifts. Uh, what ends up happening in religion is whenever there's an opportunity for— Now, watch the dichotomy, and this is, this is the reason why I picked this to start this program. Religion, the religious spirit, old institutional Christianity, yeah, these are the, the old wineskin— these are NAR concepts that are designed to basically 
unbuckle you from a church that is uh, faithful to the preaching and teaching of God's word by causing you to become suspicious of them. Oh, wow. You know, my pastor, yeah, yeah, he preaches the word, but man, we seem to be missing something here. Oh, I know what the problem is. That guy who keeps sticking to the Bible, he has a religious spirit. See, this is all part of the uh, the, the NAR work to unbuckle you from a sound church, cause you to not trust it so that they can swoop in and you know sweep you up into the NAR. This is part of their rhetoric. Position or title, uh, certain people grab hold of that and they're like, oh, this is what I am and I this is my title and you follow me and you say do what I uh, do and say what I say and this is how we're going to do it because God's given me this position in the church. And uh, I believe that the gifts listed in Ephesians chapter 4 are very specifically used in in many cases to bring a lot of fear and bondage. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But I Oh, no. Is your pastor bringing fear and bondage because he believes in the office of pastor? Gotta wonder, you know, this is this is interesting talk here. To lay a short foundation, and then after this video, there will be another two or three teachings on the subject because I just want to do little brief installments that you can watch at your leisure. At your leisure, okay? So I'm actually going to read several verses of Ephesians chapter four so that we can get some context for what we're looking at, and then I just want to share some things with you that God has shared with me over the years as I've pursued Him in my calling uh, in spiritual gifts. Now, by the way. Uh... Um, the scripture twisting he's going to be engaging in in Ephesians 4 uh, is going to require a little bit higher level of discernment rather than just context, context, context. I'll explain that when we get there. So in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 1, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is above all and through... What's fascinating to me is that he doesn't recognize one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Yeah, see, a guy like Tom Shirley, uh, being kind of the NAR charismatic type, would believe in a second baptism of the Holy Spirit which is not biblical. Oh, and in you all. Now, there is so much rich, needed doctrine for the body of Christ just in those few verses. I'm not even going to touch that today, but suffice it to say that according to God, we are all unified and there is no division between us. The only place that division exists is in our minds. And uh, those divisions almost exclusively exist because of religious indoctrination. Yes. <laughs> yeah, did you catch that? Oh, man, that is all part of uh, NAR indoctrination. Notice he's indoctrinated people, and while talking about how, all oh, religious indoctrination is the thing that's causing problems here. Yeah, that's one of the weird things about this whole movement is um, they, they don't recognize that they're guilty of the very thing that they are critiquing other people for. Mindsets that limit our capability and experience to enjoy each other in the kingdom of God. But I digress. Uh, moving on to uh, verse number seven. Listen to what he says. So there's one, 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 one. And then in verse number seven, he says, but unto every one of us, 
is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So we're all one. We're all part of one body, one faith, one Lord, one God, one Father of all. That's all one. We've all been unified, all been made one. But God says here, uh, Paul says to us uh, under inspiration that every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And uh, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Okay, so notice in verse number seven, unto every one of us is given grace. What is that grace? It's the gift of Christ. Verse number eight, he ascended, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. Hey, listen, there is no captivity for you. There is no captivity for anyone. Why? Jesus Christ led captivity captive. He took it out of the way and made sure that it wasn't possible for us to live in captivity. So let that sink in. That's a rabbit trail. You can come back and chase that rabbit later. And I'll come back here to the spiritual gifts with me. Verse 10, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens and that he might fill all things. Now, verse number 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? Now, this is subtle, but I have to correct him. I'm not sure which translation he's reading. However, this translation is engaging in a subtle error and it's it's not on the part it's really not intentional on the part of the translators and this is one that I have to correct just basically using uh the Greek but I would note this and that is is that the ESV actually does a good job of of actually handling this text so Ephesians chapter 4 verse 9 I'll start there at verse 9 Get to 11, and you're going to notice that the word some is missing. Uh Uh-huh. And there's a reason why, because it's not actually in the Greek. But here's what it says. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he, that's Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Mm -hmm. Notice it doesn't say, and he gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists. The Greek actually is quite clear on this. It doesn't say some. It just says, and he gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. He gave the evangelists. Now, the reason why that is important is because Tom Shirley, who doesn't know Greek and is no biblical scholar, but claims to be receiving direct revelation from God, is going to make an invalid point based upon the word some. And uh, he's exegeting an English translation without first checking the Greek, because you you, you need to be in your biblical languages if you're going to handle God's word and proclaim it. The perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the knowledge I'm sorry, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we be henceforth no more tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth and love may grow up into him in all things, which is... Now, I'll give him credit. At least he's uh, trying to put this in its bigger context. Even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the self, 
uh, unto the edifying of itself in love. Now I want to draw out a very important concept. Verse number seven, every one of us is given this gift. It says in verse 11 that he gave some apostles, some prophets. Yeah, no, actually the Greek doesn't say that. No, no, actually it doesn't. And the ESV captures this correctly. He gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, and the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. It doesn't say he gave some to be. That is an incorrect translation. That's a not, that is does not properly catch what's going on in the Greek, and the ESV nails it. And what Tom Shirley is doing here is showing he's not an actual careful exegete who checks his teaching against the original languages. Some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. I'm going to come back and actually focus on those, but I'm trying to get a point across to you here. It says in uh, verse number 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. What is every joint referring to? It is referring to each member that is operating in these gifts. Okay, so here in the scriptures, you see that it's every one of us. We're given this gift. Uh, he gives some this one, some this one, some this one, some this one, and some this one. And uh, he has equipped us and put us together so that together we can edify each other and build each other up so that we can all come to the fullness of the knowledge of the Son of God and the faith and unity and all these things. We've been made one and unified. Now God wants there to be a practical reality in that for us. So uh, the point that I want to get across is this. In, in religion, in what we've been trained... Okay, notice the category. In religion, uh-huh, he's going after institutional Christianity, if you would. In religion, those religious spirits, you know, listen... In church, uh, we have been told that there are a handful of people that have been ordained by God in an office position to lead the church and that everyone else is kind of placed under their leadership. But if you take an honest look at the text, that's not what it says. Yeah, you're, you're not rightly handling this text, nor are you addressing what the scriptures teach regarding the office of pastor. Now, let me help out just a smidge here, and that is is that if we were to go to something like, yeah, first, first Timothy chapter 3, listen to these words. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing to, the, you know, to young Pastor Timothy in the first of three pastoral epistles, the pastoral epistles are First and Second Timothy and Titus, says this, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. The office of overseer is a pastoral office. So you're going to know, Scripture teaches that there is a pastoral office. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For somebody does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So you're going to note that it is expected of the one who is in the office of pastor or overseer, those are synonymous terms, that he is one who is tasked with the job of managing God's church. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Not only that, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace or into the snare 
of the devil. Okay, so that's one passage that kind of deals with this concept. But we're going to also note in Acts chapter 20, when the Apostle Paul is speaking to the elders, the pastors of the congregations in Ephesus, he says something very fascinating. And uh, here's what he says in Acts chapter 20. I'll start in verse 18, partway through it. And you yourselves know, Paul says to them, how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. All of this is for context, by the way. Except for the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace, uh, of the grace of God, and now, behold, I, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of all the, blo- the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, and there's a word, overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So we note that God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who calls pastors or overseers, calls them to the task of serving and ministering to and overseeing the flock of Christ. That's the idea behind pastor and shepherd. And you'll note that 1 Timothy 3 makes it clear that this is an office. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The church is an institution, and institutions have offices. So important to note that along the way here. We'll come back to uh, Tom Shirley, and of course I'm running a little bit long, but that's okay. Listen in. One of the big things that really bothers me about uh, the way that the Bible is used is it, it's even by people that are, are, are well versed and educated in it. They don't look at the actual context of what they're reading before they reach their conclusions and make their decisions. According to the context, every single believer has been equipped with some are apostles, apostles, not apostles. Some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, some are pastors and teachers. No. That is patently false. Ephesians 4 makes it clear that Christ gave the apostles. He didn't say give some to be apostles. So it's not true that you are one of these. Either you are an apostle or you're a prophet or you're a pastor, teacher, or an evangelist. That is not true. And so uh, Tom Shirley doesn't know what he's talking about. And uh, he's kind of in a league of his own as far as his doctrine is concerned, uh, but he's still kind of in the general world of the NAR. And I wanted you to hear that, uh, just at least as a primer to kind of open up the door here. Now, important to note that uh, there are no uh, apostles today. No, actually, there are none. And, uh, you know, the 
12 apostles have long ago died, and um, in order to be an apostle, you have to be an eyewitness to the resurrection, have been there from the time of Christ's baptism until the time of his death, you know, things like that. And uh, the apostle Paul received a special dispensation from Christ, but he was also a um, an eyewitness to the resurrection himself. And the idea is is that the word apostle means an emissary or one who is sent. And, of course, the question is, who sent you? If somebody says, I'm an apostle, you should immediately ask, okay, so you're a sent one. Who sent you? And, the, the, you know, the, all of the apostles of Jesus, those sent by Christ, they've done their duty. They're no longer around. And you're going to note then in Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle Paul makes – he says these – these words, and in verse 20 in particular, we want to pay attention to what he says there regarding the prophets and the apostles. But I'll start at verse 18 for context, for through him you have we have both access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Mm-hmm. See, the household of God, the the church of God, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You don't relay a foundation. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then, I, you know, I think, yeah, here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, kind of using this exact same language, says this, uh, starting at verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one of you take care how he builds upon the foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, you get the idea. So the Apostle Paul, kind of using that exact same analogy, the, the, the church, the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And you can even say then that Christ really truly is the foundation because the foundation that the foundation laid, <laughs> which is a weird way of talking, is, uh, is Christ. And so the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. They, it, there are no apostles in, you know, and prophets really in that sense today at all. So uh, you, you get the idea. So Tom Shirley is uh, surely confused, and please stop calling me Shirley. I think you get the idea. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we will... Uh, hear from C. Peter Wagner. We will also hear from Lou Engel. And with any luck, we'll uh, actually begin our sermon review in hour number one. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. Peter, James, John, and Paul are all dead. That means there are no living apostles in the church today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. 
Holiday's Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. I got a large, non-fat, decaf mocha with no whipped cream, two pumps of chocolate, and diet soy milk for Tiffany. Oh, actually, it's just Tiff. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, Tiff, then. Like, thank you so much. I've never made a drink quite like this before. I can't even imagine what you'd call it. My friends call it, like, the why bother, but it sure doesn't stop me from loving it. <laughs> Nice talking with you. Adios. I am so sorry about that. Anyway, where was I? All right, so you won't believe what happened to me on Sunday. So, like, you know how I've been trying to learn more about Jesus and God and stuff? Well, ever since I got into it, my friend Brittany has been begging me to go to her church. It's that big building on Michigan Street... It's got, like, a stage and a praise band. I mean, it's got, like, a ton of people, so the pastor must be pretty cool, right? Well, the sermon starts. I've got my Bible, my notebook, my pocket catechism, and my flower pen. All ready to hear about God. And what does he talk about? A bird. This guy went on some 20-minute bunny trail about a bluebird that landed on his windowsill. And I'm just sitting there like, what about Jesus? I mean, they had just had a laser light show about how much they loved him. Um, Hold that thought. I have to use the little girl's room. I'll be back in a sec. Jeff said, wrecked him, wrecked him. You practically killed him. (laughs) Oh, I am so sorry. I've accidentally dumped my white bother all over you. Your outfit is totally ruined. Here, let me use these only slightly absorbent napkins to wipe it up for you. All right, use this. A little bit there. And uh, there. That seems to have gotten most most of it. Here's my business card if the stains don't come out. I happen to own and run a dry cleaner's just down the road. Anyway, gotta run. think these people realize what Jesus did. Let me explain this to you. So, first of all, I'm like a sinner, and I need forgiveness, right? So God was like, I'm going to send my son. So Jesus came, and he died on the cross, and everybody's sins were forgiven, and we were all like, cool. So when I go to church, I want to hear about Jesus. But for some reason, these people don't even talk about Jesus. You know, if you think about it, the church is like totally God's house. So Jesus invited all of us to his forgiveness party, and we all showed up and said that we loved him, and then we completely ignore him. That is so rude. Not only is it rude to God, but it's a total ripoff for me. I want to hear about how my sins are forgiven. But instead, these people are like, let me tell you my life story. Um, excuse you? You think that your birds are more important than God? That is so rude. Honey, what happened to your shirt?
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, exclusive Skype interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that there are no modern apostles today. Because there's not. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is uh, Powder Monkey, and that is based upon a monthly commitment of $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us, helps us to have a good, solid financial foundation so that we can continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you would like to support us by becoming a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to support us with a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button and fill out the steps there. Or you can do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here we're going to reset a little bit for our NAR update. So let's do it this way. So I was having this wedding, and and we, we well, we didn't have we Shabbat. 
Yeah, that's right. That's uh, Heidi Baker. Uh, she was uh, set apart in the NAR to provide apostolic oversight and stuff to the continent of Africa. I'm not making that up. So uh, we're going to uh, listen to two things that actually I'm going to read them out for you. That uh, C. Peter Wagner, the late C. Peter Wagner, the guy who coined the phrase New Apostolic Reformation. And uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of his rhetoric and some of the points that he's making. Uh, the first is from an Elijah List post titled, The Wiles of the Spirit of Religion. And this is an important, vital piece for us to listen to for this reason. Um, the, it's this constant talk about the so-called spirit of religion. You're going to hear you know, how the institutional church, church as we know it, is not get it, it it it's archaic because it needs to you know what we need to do is embrace the new wineskin kind of thingy that God's releasing and uh, then I'm going to read out a portion of C Peter Wagner's forward to the book The Apostolic Revolution written by Dave Cartledge so let's we'll start with the Elijah list post the wiles of the spirit of religion and here's what C Peter Wagner wrote you could be afflicted by an evil spirit and not even suspect that you are. Oh, no. Could it be a sneaky squid? I don't know. He says, I'm referring to, are you ready for this? The spirit of religion, possibly the most subtle spirit in Satan's army of darkness. Those are his words, by the way. You usually know if you are oppressed by a spirit of, say, lust or rejection or gluttony or fear of addiction or anger or greed, just to name a few. Most of the time, you don't want to keep living under the influence of that spirit and you seek deliverance. But that is not the case with the spirit of religion. Why? It is because this religious spirit has the power to make you believe that the religious things that you are doing are the will of God. <gasps> yeah, such are the wiles of the religious spirit. One of the assignments that God has given me, yeah, that's C. Peter Wagner talking, in this season is to expose the spirit of religion to the body of Christ so that it can be recognized, dealt with, and ultimately bound. We, as individual believers, our churches, our ministries, and our Christian leaders in general need complete freedom from the religious spirit if we are going to be everything that God wants us to be. And the Apostle Paul writes, to the Corinthians, he says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So let's turn that verse around and ask this question. What will happen to us if we are ignorant of Satan's devices? The answer, of course, is that he will take advantage of us. My take on that is that the more we know about the devices of the religious spirit, the less it will be able to take advantage of us. So what the Spirit is saying to the churches in these days, that's the next subheading on this Elijah List post. Soon after I received God's assignment to expose the spirit of religion, God began bringing 
me into contact with others of like mind. I cannot remember hearing a whole message on the religious spirit before this process started, although I did hear the religious spirit mentioned numerous times in sermons and other messages. I believe that the first full teaching I heard was from Tommy Femwright in one of our GHMs, that's Global Harvest Ministries conferences, and the second was from Leo Lawson of Every Nation. Then Robert Heidler preached a sermon on it at the glory of Zion in Denton, Texas. <clears throat> Gloria Zion. <clears throat> Following that, I discovered Chris Hayward of Cleansing Stream Ministries that had introduced a whole segment on the religious spirit and his deliverance retreats. Next, I found a booklet that Rick Joyner had written on the subject. But then I was believing that this is something that the Spirit is saying to the churches these days. So I approached Regal Books to see if they would be willing to be whistleblowers and publish a whole book exposing this demonic principality. Makes you wonder if the religious spirit is in cahoots with the sneaky squid. Just have to ask. He continues, though, characteristically, Regal was more than willing to step up to the plate. So I recruited those whom I have mentioned, as well as Chuck Pierce, Kimberly Daniels, Jim Anderson, and Hank and Maureen Morris to join me in producing a power-packed book. Freedom from the Religious Spirit is the name of it which Regal will be releasing later in May. Obviously, that's already released. I'm excited about the impact that this book will have throughout our nation. So next subheading, what do I mean by a spirit of religion? A definition. What does the spirit of religion do? Here is my definition, C. Peter Wagner writes, which I think is quite accurate. The spirit of religion is an agent of Satan designed to prevent change and to maintain the status quo by using religious devices. Huh. <laughs> the religious spirit is uh, a satanic agent designed to, well, maintain the status quo. The change that I am referring to, Wagner writes, referring to embraces the new directions that God continually has for his people. God is not static. He unfolds new times, new seasons for us as individuals and for the corporate church. He pours his new wine into, listen, new wine skins. The Bible says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the word says in the present time, in the present tense, not the past tense, the religious spirit tries to keep us from hearing the present tense by having us focus on the past tense. This is nonsense, by the way. <clears throat> so what God said in the past was truly the word of God. Today's old wineskin was yesterday's new wineskin, receiving God's new wine. That is why the spirit of religion has relevant has relatively easy task. It wants us to stay where we were and not move into God's new season. Here we were good. Uh, it was once God's place for us, but now the religious spirit wants to convince us that God has nothing better for us in the future. So don't give in. You rebuke that spirit. Jump into the river of God and move along with the power of the Holy Spirit into your next season. The past might have been good, but your destiny is the future, not the past. Think of the Pharisees. Notice how he plays the Pharisee cards here. They became Jesus' worst enemies. They were not bad people. Yes, they were. He, they strictly followed the laws of God. No, they didn't. They added to them. Jesus makes that clear. They were respected leaders of the Jews. Why then did they hate Jesus so much? It's because of the religious spirit. 
that has such a tight grip on them. Jesus came bringing a new season, the kingdom of God. Even though he was the Messiah they had been waiting for over the centuries, they could not see it because the religious spirit had blinded their eyes. Uh huh. One of the telling confrontations came when the Pharisees asked Jesus, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. This was not an issue of violating the Ten Commandments. This was the tradition of the elders, which meant that over time, the religious leaders of Israel had added layer after layer of religious tradition to the law. Now, that's actually true. Yeah, they had added an oral tradition to the written word of God. And that was the problem. They saw the written word of God and the oral tradition as equal revelations. So the Pharisees were so committed to their religion that they felt that anyone who did not do as they did was offending God. Yeah, that's because they believed the tradition of the elders was given by God. So they sincerely thought that they were doing the will of God. In reality, they were being victimized by the spirit of religion. No, that's not what was happening. But he continues, Jesus, of course, saw through this his response to the Pharisees. Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? The spirit of religion can become so powerful that those under its influence are not just benignly neutral. They have allowed themselves to get into a position where they are actually working against God. Ordinarily, if you try to tell them that, they won't hear you because their minds have been so twisted by that demon that they think that they are doing God's will. Jesus then showed the Pharisees how they twisted a specific commandment of God and called them hypocrites, and he said, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Two thousand years later, religious leaders are still teaching the religious rules and regulations produced by human beings as if they were absolute doctrines. This is an important thing. Now, This still does go on today, but this is the gloss that the NAR and people in the NAR and the charismatic and Pentecostal movements use to basically say that church over there where the pastor's faithfully preaching sound doctrine and refusing to bend the knee to the false prophets and the false apostles of today, that somehow they're the ones teaching human doctrines. That's the interesting thing. So Wagner then concludes, the spirit of religion that affected the Pharisees affects pastors, ministry leaders, teachers, and denominational executives, and many others today. The Holy Spirit is speaking to the church, but they don't want to follow the new directions. They prefer what the Spirit said to the churches back when they were a new wineskin. This is a false doctrine, by the way. I know that you don't want to be marooned on the desert island of human tradition. So note, in their their mythology, God delivers a new season, a new wineskin to the church. And the people are doing the new thing, the new wineskin thingy, and then God brings a new, new wineskin, which is not what that doctrine's about, by the way. And and when those people who haven't transitioned from the the old wineskin that was once a new wineskin into the new wineskin, they are that the reason that they don't do that is because they have a religious spirit. So I I think you get the idea. But Wagner also wrote uh, the. Um, introduction to David Cartledge's book, The Apostolic Revolution. And let me read that out for you. It's a foreword 
to that book. And I again, I find this to be quite fascinating and helpful as we will begin to listen to Michael Brown's sermon about the Jesus movement versus institutional Christianity. It plays on all of these same themes. So listen, listen to this. Uh, Peter Wagner, writing the foreword to the Apostolic Revolution, says, Few Christian leaders in these early years of the 21st century could remain unaware that an epical new wineskin is being fashioned by God for the future of the church, in all probability as a preparation for the second coming of Christ. Those here and there who remain in denial do so mostly because they possess a deeply rooted and emotional attachment to... The status quo. Man, this is powerful brainwashing, by the way. This is powerful. It's like you see, the person listening to this and believing see Peter Wagner goes, oh, my goodness. <gasps> I'm a part of a church that's part of the status quo. They sing hymns and the pastor preaches exegetical sermons. Ah, I got to flee. That's how the trap works, by the way. Wagner continues, among those who are hearing what the Spirit is saying to the churches these days, many predictably are yet unsure as to the configuration of what of this new wineskin. When they hear terms like apostolic revolution, they wonder with no little apprehension where this movement light might lead. If structural and organizational ecclesiastical standbys such as bureaucratic, hierarchical, and democratic principles of government are being regulated to the old wineskin, where do we go from here? So notice he's describing institutional Christianity the same way that Michael Brown will be describing it, talking about bureaucracies, hierarchies, ecclesiastical structures and governments and things like that. So so the religious spirit basically creates, in their way of thinking, all of this, these um, organizations or structures and hierarchies, according to the old wineskin, that get in the way of the new wineskin. Uh-huh. So Wagner continues, could the alternatives lead to dictatorships, personal empire building, ego trips, prima, prima donnaism? No one I know is more aware of and sensitive to these questions than Dave Cartledge. He has held leadership positions in both wineskins. David understands that the old wineskin was the best wineskin of its time. And at one time, the old wineskin was divinely ordained, was the divinely ornate, ordained new wineskin. You... <laughs> For powerful advances of the kingdom of God, the difference between the two is not one of good and bad. Both, if they are willing uh, within the plan of God, are good. But the difference is that while one was the best for the past, the other is now the best for the future. I call this new wineskin the new apostolic Reformation. I've been researching and writing on it since 1993. The New Apostolic Reformation now comprises the fastest-growing segment of churches on every continent of the world. Yeah, it's funny that, you know, Michael Brown calls it the so-called New Apostolic Reformation. It's just strange. Anyway, so this fact is causing many traditional church leaders to ask, what would we have to do to transition from the old to the new? Mm Mm-hmm. Jesus said that significant transitions into the future will require new 
wineskins, to which I would say, no, he did not. That's a twisting of Matthew 9, 17. While everyone in Jesus' culture recognized that to be true, history tells us that there was also a procedure for reconditioning some old wineskins so that their usefulness could be extended. My research, as a matter of fact, did uncover some local churches which had once been traditional but which now were under apostolic-type leadership. But I had not been able to locate any traditional denominations which had made this transition. Several that I know of had declared that they wanted to transition, but the changes that they had proceeded to institute were at best cosmetic changes. Their efforts fell short largely because they really had no idea of what profound structural realignments would be necessary in order to recondition their old wineskin. I am grateful that before I released my textbook on, textbook on the New Apostolic Reformation Church Quake, that's what it's called, by the way, a conversation with my friend David Cartledge revealed that the Australian Assemblies of God had, in fact, made elusive transition to the new wineskin years ago. Um, then he provided information that I was able to conclude in church, Churchquake, along with a graph of the Australian Assemblies of God immediately after this change. The little section of my book has been a huge encouragement to many church leaders who want to remain on the cutting edge, at least as I was able to let the, uh, to let then let them know that it could be done. But I didn't answer their quest their next question: How was it actually done? A major reason that I'm so excited about this book that uh, David Cartlidge now tells us exactly how this was done. So. All of that is to kind of, again, lay some track for what it is we're going to hear in our sermon review. But last and definitely not least on the hit parade, we're going to go, we're going to reprise ourselves of a portion of the sermon delivered by Lou Engel at King's Chapel in Alaska, the name of which was The Third Awakening. And listen carefully to what he is saying regarding the prophecy of the coming Jesus movement. Listen to this. We went on. We launched into those fasts. God brought forth the call. It was born out of Luke uh, chapter 1, 117. I had a dream in which I was overwhelmed with the impossibility of seeing America turn back to God. But in the dream, a scroll rolled down before me. And it says this. And he will go on before the Lord and the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the rebellious to the wisdom of the righteous. I wake up and the Lord speaks to me. What I'm pouring out in America is stronger than the rebellion. You can't read that scripture without placing Elijah in Jezebel's culture. He shook the whole system and God promises he's going to pour out that spirit again. That was the spirit of the call. We dreamed about it. We preached it. The Nazarite, John the Baptist, fasting and praying generation is arising. And 400,000 came to the sound of that trumpet in, in, in September 2nd, 2000. We've seen stadiums filled. We've seen arenas filled of fasting and prayer. But it was recently that I was crying out to God and I said, God, it seems like America is worse shaped than it's ever been. And, and I started this thing with you, God. 
with a prayer, how can America turn back to God? And a woman comes to me and says, you don't know who I am, but the Lord told me to pay your salary this year because you're going to start something with the youth of America that will change the destiny of the nation in prayer. She's 91. She's been praying, paying my salary for 16 years. And I'm thinking, my God, he, he released this thing because he wanted a movement of Nazarite burning men and women, fasting, praying, loving God, loving the coming of the bridegroom. And as I'm crying out, I said, God, has the call failed? I felt like the Lord speak to my heart. If it truly was a John the Baptist type of movement, you can bet there's a Jesus movement coming. Okay, so God told Lou Engel, there's a Jesus movement coming. Okay, important stuff, because Lou Engel is NAR to the hilt. Because the last word of John was not... Prepare the way of the Lord. The last word of John is, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, and he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this Jesus movement, by the way, is the one new man. This is the Joshua generation, you know, the Joel's army. This is just a different term for it. Same concept, though. And so... The, the Jesus movement, you know, that the, the John the Baptist movement that preceded it is going to give way to the Jesus movement. And listen to what he says the impact is going to be. I am beginning to pronounce to America, there is one coming. Who's there coming? is one coming. He's already here, but he's coming. Who's coming? He's been among us, but there are times when he comes. I say the revival is God's arrival. It's when he takes the field. All right. So the arrival is God's arrival. Yeah, that, that has some serious eschatological implications, if you would. So I think you get the idea. All of that is foundation for our sermon review. And uh, I'm going to take our second break, just a smidge early. And uh, we're going to then come back after the break, and we're going to listen to Michael Brown. Michael Brown, talk about, no joke, the, um, the, the difference between institutional Christianity and the Jesus movement. Yeah, just weird, but uh, let's do this. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. When we come back, Michael Brown and uh, the Jesus Movement versus Institutional Christianity. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Gibberish is not one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's 
delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. <laughs> and what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if um the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Number two of Fighting for the Faith. This is going to take a uh, wee bit of time. Yeah, it's, it's a long one. My apologies, but this sermon is one of the most important sermons I've reviewed in like a long, long time. And like in the career of Fighting for the Faith, it's an, it's easily in the top five, maybe even higher. But uh, let's do this right. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Dr. Michael Brown, the name of the sermon, The Jesus Movement versus Institutional Christianity, delivered on the 9th of October, 2005. You already have C. Peter Wagner's new wineskins versus old wineskins, religious spirit nonsense running around in your brain. You also have um, Lou Engel's claim that there will be a Jesus movement uh, before Jesus' return. You know, he was the leader of the John the Baptist movement, and there will be a Jesus movement. And we're going to note how Michael Brown twists scripture 
doesn't rightly handle it and literally is attacking the church being an institution. But the church is an institution. How do we know? Because it has offices. It has always been an institution. An institution instituted by none other than Jesus Christ himself. So let's go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Dr. Michael Brown and uh, the Jesus movement versus institutional Christianity. Here we go. Father, we love you. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your people here this night. I pray you would open the eyes of our understanding. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we can know you better. Speak to us and change us so we can go out and speak to the world and change the world. Lord, your servants are listening. I pray again, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. I want to speak to you tonight about the Jesus movement versus institutional Christianity. The Jesus movement versus institutional Christianity. I want to show you the differences between these two so that you can give yourselves wholeheartedly to the Jesus movement without getting trapped in institutional Christianity. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to get trapped in that institutional Christianity. Oh, that's terrible stuff right there. We'll read in a moment from Matthew 16, but let me just say this plainly. Whoever you are hearing this message here tonight or in the future, I don't want you to think that we can ever be totally free to the point that we are completely separated from anything that is man-made or institutional. If we think that... So notice he's already setting up the category that institutional equals man-made. I mean, I just have to ask the question up front here as you're listening to the sermon. Has James White listened to the sermon? Because James White is a preacher in a Reformed Baptist church. And according to the categories that Michael Brown sets up here... Michael Brown is literally going to categorize the type of church that James White is a part of and preaches at and is part of the leadership of as the problem. Uh-huh. You know, just, you know, just throw it out there. We alone have the real thing, and everybody else is deceived. That's a sign that we are deceived. If we think that there's nothing man-made in us and what we're doing, if we think that we alone have the pure, authentic church, we have already disqualified ourselves for self-righteousness and arrogance. However, we can examine ourselves based on certain criteria. We can see certain things that the Word lays out, certain things that are according to God's heart, certain things that are according to Scripture. And whether we meet in a house meeting, whether we meet in a cathedral, whether we meet in an open field or in a cave, we can examine ourselves by these principles and look to be free from that which is produced by the flesh and rather give ourselves to that which is born of the Spirit. So, so uh, anything institutional is of the flesh. Check. Matthew 16, Jesus speaks these famous words. He's speaking to, to Peter, and I'm going to give you a lot more scripture as we go on, but I just want to read this part of one verse in Matthew 16, verse 18. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church or build my congregation, and the gates 
of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus specifically said that he would build his congregation. The, the word that is used here in the Greek, ekklesia, has nothing to do with a church building. It has to do with a community of people. A con- Right. I would agree. It does. But I'm going to note something here. This is not a comprehensive or exhaustive look at what the Scripture teaches regarding the church and how it is organized. That is the vital part. Because if you just look at this verse to the exclusion of other passages that make it clear that God the Holy Spirit has called man into the office of overseer, then you're going to miss a, a vital point. And that is is that th- this congregation is organized. And it's organized according to offices. That is an institution, not a movement. ...of believers. In fact, when William Tyndale translated the Bible into English in the days before King James, he translated this word ecclesia with congregation. It was not a new concept that Jesus was introducing. It, it wasn't this secret word that no one had ever heard of before. There was the congregation of Israel, and now there was the congregation he was going to build of Jew and Gentile joined together in life in the Spirit. It was a new thing that he would do. It was his congregation. That's what made it new and different. But he was not introducing a, a concept of another religion called Christianity that his disciples had never heard of. God did not send his son into the world as a Jewish rabbi to start a new religion called Christianity. So when we read the words, I will build my church, we might think of church, that means Christianity, church, that means a building. Jesus was saying no such thing. He's saying, I'm going to build my congregation. I'm going to build my community. And the gates of Hades itself will not prevail against it, will not overcome it, will not stop it. And if he was speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, all the more he was not introducing a new concept as much as the new nature of the congregation that he was going to build. What does it look like? What did he come to earth to do? What, what is the congregation that he is building? William Tyndale rightly translated the word congregation. Ephesians 5, Jesus died for, for a beautiful congregation, a beautiful community of believers without spot or wrinkle. Interestingly, when the King James translators translated for all the beauty of the King James and all the good in that version, they decided to go with the old ecclesiastical terms and translate it with church instead of congregation. And because of that, we get confused in our thinking. Because especially in English, church is a physical building and church is the people, and we talk about going to church rather than being the church. When Jesus... Now, I, I got a note here that, that he, in the English language, we call, we have named the um, buildings where the, the body of Christ gathers, we call them churches. That isn't antithetical to the biblical concept that People make up the congregation, that people are comprised the ecclesia in the body of Christ. This is a false dichotomy that he is setting up here. Of building the church the way it's translated here in, in, in most English Bibles, he was not talking about a physical building, nor was he talking about something that was tough. Yeah, this is true. Again, I have no problem recognizing that the true, that the true meaning of ecclesia 
is the people, the congregation, the body of Christ. But that doesn't mean that the word church, you know, for the building where we gather somehow doesn't have a meaning. It's just not the real definition of what biblically constitutes the church. In with a new religion called Christianity. He came to the earth to extend the kingdom of his father. He came to the earth to launch a holy world-changing revolution. He came to the earth to extend his... Yeah, no, there's no text that says that Jesus came to bring a revolution. Movement, the movement of the knowledge of God to the ends of the earth. And, and, and those that, that come into that flock, those that acknowledge him, those that receive him as Lord and are born again of his spirit, become part of that great congregation. What are its characteristics? What is, what is this movement that Jesus came to birth? What is- yeah, my question is, how does the scripture define how it is organized? look like? And what's the difference between the Jesus movement and that which settles in and becomes institutional Christianity? Now, when we get to him describing institutional Christianity, we're going to notice the vagaries with which he is defining it. Uh-huh. That's kind of an important piece of all of this, too. Let me give you a number of distinctions so that you can examine your own life where you fit. If you listen to this and you're in leadership and ministry, you can examine it on one level. But every believer can examine this in terms of your own life, your own commitment, your own attitude. Before I See, if you're truly committed to Jesus, you can't be part of an institutional church. That's literally what he's doing here. Into these, let me just say honestly that we are products of our generation and products of our environment and culture more than we realize. The, the younger generation growing up it, it, in many ways is an attention deficit disorder generation just because of media and sound bites and everything has to be quick and, and just the ability to stop and meditate and slow down. It's harder for the younger generation than the older generation. Our, our generation, just to give you another example, we do very little actual memorizing of things. We've got just access to information on such a level. You go back into other cultures at other times, and almost everything was carried by memory, and people just memorize much better. We're, you know, listen, our, our skin gets a certain color because we live in a certain environment, and, and, and we get used to certain weather patterns and things. They're, they're outward things. We get used to certain foods. We get used to certain lifestyle. It's the same, same thing spiritually. We, we think that, that we're doing everything biblically because this is what we're used to, but it may just be the way we got used to it in North America. Mm, okay. Yeah, why don't we go into the biblical text, that, you know, like the pastoral epistles or other places? that describe how the ecclesia is organized and how the organization puts pastors into an office. It may, it may just be the way we got used to it in the South. It, it may be just the way we grew up in our particular denomination or church background. So it, it's wisdom to step back and look at the word again. When I do a debate, I'll tell people, listen, there's some people here that were born Muslims and some people here born Jews and some people born Hindus, some people born into a Christian home. That would tell you alone that just the place you're born in does not determine truth. It's wise for us to step back and look at the word and ask honest questions. And if they're unsettling, it's for our good. God's not into just destroying things. If he tears down one thing, it's so he can build up something better. Amen? Catch that? Tear down one thing so that he can build something better. 
That sounded a lot like C. Peter Wagner and the old wineskin versus the new wineskin. And there's a reason for that. Let me give you some of the differences between the Jesus movement and institutional Christianity. And let me say once more, I'm not pointing my finger at a thing and calling that thing that meets in a certain place or has a certain name on it institutional Christianity and some other thing that meets outside of that and doesn't have that name is the Jesus movement. No, I'm saying... Here he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, by the way. God is moving in all different kinds of settings and there's some level of institutionalism in lots of those settings and we just need to look at our own hearts so that we we can be free from that which is man-made. So first basic thing is this. The Jesus movement is God-birthed, God-empowered, and God-directed. So the Jesus movement. But see, the thing is, the church isn't a movement. It's an institution with offices. Yeah, that's weird. The Jesus movement is God-birthed, God-empowered, and God-directed. Institutional Christianity is man-birthed, man-empowered, and man-directed. I see. So if you are part of a church that sees itself as an institution, well, that's man-made. Huh. Isn't that interesting? What do I mean? Jesus comes to the earth with a divine mission. At a certain point in life, he begins to gather disciples around himself. And then he dies on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. Then he rises from the dead. Then he gives further instruction to his disciples. Then he, he gives them a commission to go and change the world. The great commission, the commission to... Go no, actually, Jesus did not give the disciples a commission to change the world. Nope. The great commission is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that Christ has commanded. Yeah, we got a problem here because here we've got the NAR emphasis on societal change. You see, the movement, the NAR, is all about societal change. Uh-huh. The institution established by Christ is organized for the purpose of making disciples of all nations. Big difference. Make disciples of the nations in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, is literally a call to go and change the world. If no, it's not. No, that's that's an NAR emphasis. That's not a biblical one. Succeed in making disciples of the nations, then we succeed in changing the world. I didn't say taking over the world. I said changing it by the power of the gospel. So Jesus then calls his people, and then he ascends to heaven, and then he sends his spirit, and then they begin to preach and they begin to reproduce, and you have a holy movement going on. And people are touched, and they go and touch up. Yeah, see, again, the, the scriptures do not describe the ecclesia as a movement. You're imposing that. And people are forgiven, and they go and extend the good news and forgiveness to others. And there are battles and obstacles, but they don't stop because they're, they're part of this holy movement. They want to see the kingdom of God extended. They want to see Jesus return. They want to see captives set free. So apparently the, ex yeah, you see what I'm saying here? We're going to bring the Jesus back? Okay. They burn to do that. And, and God births this, and unless God empowers it, it doesn't go anywhere. See, God births the movement. But if you're part of a church that's institutional, ah, ha, ha, that's man-made. Right. 
Jesus said in John 6.63 that the flesh profits nothing. Not speaking there of the sinful nature, but of human effort. The flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. The Jesus movement cannot operate by its own power or wisdom. That's why Jesus told the disciples in Luke 24, 49 to stay in the city of Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. How are you going to heal the sick without the power of God? How are you going to drive out demons without the power of God? How are you going to confront religious strongholds without the power of God? How are just a handful of people going to impact society without the power of God? So the Jesus movement is God birthed, God empowered, and God directed. It's not just a matter of human strategy, because this is too big for human strategy. And then many times human strategy works opposite to God's strategy. Important to note here um, in the NAR, the people who receive the strategies, this is NAR talk, by the way, the people who receive the strategies are the modern-day apostles. I'm just saying. Human strategy would not take a Jewish carpenter, have him die in obscurity on a cross in Jerusalem, and use that to change the world. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And God takes delight in using weak things to confound the mighty and the strong and the wise. The Jesus movement is God-birthed, God-empowered, God-directed. Institutional Christianity is man-birthed, man-empowered, man-directed. In other words... You wouldn't want to be part of an institutional church, would you? That's created by man. Uh-huh. People just get to thinking. People get to planning. People get to doing things outside of God's power. Hey, it's hard on the flesh to wait for God. It, it's crucifying to human wisdom to depend on God. It's, it, 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 it cuts out the, the pride and the self-reliance that we're so used to. So over a period of time, we, we start to settle in. Over a period of time, we start to get comfortable. Over a period of time, we start to develop programs and things that are very nice and religious and, and, and we can do all this without the power of God. Listen, cults are growing without the power of God. Businesses in the business world are growing without the power of God. Ungodly shows on TV are growing without the power of God. You can, you can grow and succeed in many different ways without the power of God, but you can't advance the kingdom. Institutional Christianity doesn't... Yeah, it's weird. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Preaching the gospel. The gospel is the power, the dunamis of God unto salvation. Yeah, that's weird. And you see, when people are brought to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, the kingdom of God has come to them. Think of Zacchaeus, you know, the wee little man in the sycamore tree. Yeah, the kingdom of God had come to him when he was brought to penitent faith in Jesus. Strange. That's the kingdom. It builds things that are, that are very nostalgic or very powerful or, or very satisfying in certain ways. But it doesn't change the world. Yeah, so if it's not changing the world, it's just institutional. Apparently weird. Institutional Christianity is man birth. This is what happens when, when human ways start to take precedence over the word and the spirit. It's man empowered. It can go on without the anointing. Someone made the statement some years ago that if the Holy Spirit was to leave the earth today, 95% of all Christian ministry would go on unaffected. That's, that's probably an extreme statement in terms of what God is doing throughout the world. But in certain parts of the world, it's certainly true. And so much of what we do in North America could go on without the anointing. Go on just with good human effort, with trying hard, with doing our best. 
And, and so much of what we do, if we'd be honest, is our best effort to make up for the absence of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> no, notice, no biblical text here, just him spewing his ideas. Institutional Christianity is man birth, man empowered, and man directed. Yeah, could you give us examples, please? Please, I'd, I'd like you to be very specific. When God's going to move a certain way, man takes over. Oh, okay. when, when when God's going to make us uncomfortable, man shuts us down. Mm. When, when God's ways are going to be a threat to our... See, when, yeah, that's right. See, when God's going to make us uncomfortable by causing us to laugh uncontrollably, fall to the ground shaking and quaking and barking like dogs, man in institutional Christianity gets in the way or a threat to our reputation or a threat to our authority or a threat to our income or a threat to our power base, we just kind of shut it down. Here's another difference. The Jesus movement is revolutionary. Institu yeah, revolutionary in the sense that it has revolted against the Bible and God's word. Christianity is religious, in quotes. Not, not the good religion that James... Actually, Jacob in Greek, that, that Jacob speaks of in, in, in Jacob or James 1, true religion, undefiled before God the Father is this, to, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I'm not talking about that kind of religion. I'm talking about nice religion. Institutional Christianity is, is very touching. We, we, we have lovely holiday services. We, we develop these, these lovely customs that, that kind of satisfy the religious itch that's in most human beings. The Jesus movement is revolutionary. The Jesus movement comes to bring about radical change. The Jesus movement says life as it is is not worth living for, but the cause is worth dying for. That's the revolutionary mentality. The Jesus. Which text is he exegeting again? He, 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 this isn't an exegesis of Matthew 16. But is, is absolutely consumed with this mission of God to set people free and liberate them from bondage to Satan and, and the world. The Jesus movement is absolutely consumed with this desire to see God's new thing displace Satan's old miserable thing. Uh huh. Okay. Jesus movement prays prayers like, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Rick yeah, that's weird. Those institutional churches actually pray the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> it's just, yeah, that's where that comes from. Weird. Recognizing that is a radical revolutionary prayer. Institutional Christianity is happy with nice religion. It's happy with soulish... Could you, could you define nice religion... In biblical terms, please. Goosebumps. The Jesus movement requires total commitment. Institutional Christianity requires minimal commitment. Hmm. Jesus said, now remember, this, this is our king, this is our master. We don't have other traditions that overrule what he says. We don't have prophetic voices in Revelation that overrules what he says. Therefore, what he says must be taken as final authority. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, this is throughout the Gospels. You read it here in Matthew 16, just in a few verses, if you like. Jesus said, Matthew 16, 24, and other places in the Gospels, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself 
and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, yeah, a commitment to the... There, there's no way you can do that in a church that has, you know, like pastors and stuff. And is institutional. Oh, there's no way you can have that level of commitment in a, in a, in a church that has nice holiday services. Nope, it's impossible. Death was required. In other words, saying, I no longer live for myself, but I live to do the will of God, was required. This is not the means to salvation. This is the requirement for the saved. This is what he expects of his disciples and is telling us, if we don't do this, he says in in Luke 14, verse 33, that unless we forsake everything we have, we can't be his disciple. For years, I read that as if he was saying, I won't let you be my disciple which I'm sure has truth to it, but what he was saying is, you can't be. In other words, the conflict between the love of this world and love for me will be too great. You can't serve two masters. If this world still has you, if you are still living for the things in this world, if the possessions have you and own you, then you can't be my disciple. It's it's like someone that's completely out of shape and can't even walk up these four steps here to the platform without getting out of breath saying, I'm going to run the New York Marathon. Tell a person, you can't run the marathon. Oh, yeah, I'm going to run and finish that marathon. You can't. They say, yes, I can. Anyone can sign up. You don't understand. You can't run it. That's 26 miles. You won't make it. Jesus is saying, you won't make it as one of my disciples. He, he, He said, if you love your father and mother more than me in Matthew 10, he said, you're not worthy of me. He didn't have to beg us. He's the son of God. He's the pearl of great price. Finding him and knowing him outweighs everything this world could possibly offer. Paul in Philippians 3 joyfully suffered the loss of everything so he could have Jesus. And having him made everything else not worthy of being compared. Even the sufferings he went through and the beatings and the imprisonment and the mockery and and, and everything he lived through and the demonic attack He said in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, our light and momentary troubles work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He said in Romans 8, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present world not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. What a pearl of great price. What a savior. And he dies for us and offers us eternal life. He doesn't have to grovel. It's not a matter of, you know, well, we accept him. He's kind of waiting A.W. Tozer described it as Jesus kind of waiting hat in hand to find out, are we going to accept him or not? No, the question is, is he going to accept us? The Jesus movement requires total commitment. When when Paul said... Right, total commitment. You can't do that in, you know, a church that is organized. Nope, can't do that. In Philippians 1.20, that his commitment to glorify God was by life or by death. And then he said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's the context of those words. If I live, I live for Jesus. If I die, that's gain. Either way, by life or by death, I'm going to glorify him. He wasn't saying, this is just my super holy commitment. He wrote later in Philippians 4, 9, whatever you've seen in me, model it. Do it. He, he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow the Messiah. It's what Jesus said. We have to take up our cross. That means we die to this world, and we now live to do the will of God. And what is the will of God? Yeah, what is it? Because I look at, like, Ephesians 2.10, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Uh Uh-huh. 
And the good works that are described in Ephesians have to do with being a good dad, a good mom, a good wife, a good husband, a good employer, and a good employee, and things like that. Hmm, interesting. Well, Christianity requires attendance at a meeting. It's quite a difference. Yeah, institutional Christianity only requires attendance at a meeting. This is a non sequitur and a straw man. He's burning a straw man. By life or by death, I now live to do the will of God. No, I'm not yet perfect. Yes, there are still struggles and battles. Yes, I live in this world and I have responsibilities like the world has. It's not like we suddenly get translated into another realm. But my commitment to the cause, my commitment to the master, my commitment to the great commission, to the movement, is by life or by death. I've crossed the line. As Paul wrote, I no longer live. It's Messiah who lives in me. Institutional Christianity says come to a meeting, come to a service. Right, yeah, yeah. So does the radical Jesus movement, they don't have any church services, huh? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, right, yeah. Now listen, I am all for assembling together. Okay. I'm all for getting together in every kind of setting, corporate settings. Sunday is the day of the week that we meet. Then we meet on Sunday. If it's Saturday, we meet. We get together as often as we can. We meet during the week. We meet in homes. We meet in our, our building for corporate services. We meet in small groups. Every kind of setting we can meet, let's meet together. I'm all for that. And, and let's give. I can't see how you can read the word and think that you should give less than 10% to the work of the gospel. Yeah, that's real simple because 10% is the tithe associated with the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, uh, we're set apart in our hearts what we're to give. God loves a cheerful giver. We don't give under compulsion. But it struck me today that the Jesus commitment, the Jesus movement requires commitment to the death and the most institutional Christianity requires is commitment to the tithe. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Again, could you please point me to one of these churches where, you know, you know, that, uh, that, that their only commitment is to the tithe? You know, I can think of word of faith, charismatic movement churches that are like that, you know? I mean, think of that. One says, will you live for me and die for me? The other says, will you give 10%? You give the 10%, give 20, give more. Amen. And, 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 and if you have graduated from the tithe, God has delivered you from the tithe because you're under grace. Well, grace is always more. Do it however you do it. If it comes out more, I rejoice with you. Feed the poor, help those in need, support the work of the gospel. The Jesus movement requires total commitment to the death Institutional Christianity requires minimal commitment to the tithe. I, I mean, minimal. Again, straw man. I I want to see this church. You know, this this institutional church. Commitment meaning up to the tithe. That's you know, wow, I'm I'm really committed. And I, I go to church twice a week. I'm really committed. How about being the church seven days a week? It's a whole different level of commitment. Whole different lifestyle. Whole different mentality starts to cost you something. There's a price to pay. What do you mean by be the church seven days a week? I'm part of the body of Christ. I serve my neighbor in my vocations. You know, again, read the back half of the epistles talking about how we do our good works as husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, 
employer, employee, you know, those things. Again, this is weird, really weird. Reproach to bear. There's a holy responsibility. Different attitude, different mindset. We work with a precious Indian brother that has often been under death threats. Many years ago, he was working in an area and, and went to share the gospel in a village and asked the man if he knew Jesus. And the man didn't even know it was a name. He just thought it was a name of another location. He said, I've never heard of that place. If you go to the next village, they can tell you where it is. And Yesipano thought, man, I'm, this my, my Indian friend, I'm working right here. And these, these people have never even heard of Jesus. So he determined to go into that village and preach. And the Hindu elders said to him, if you come in this village to preach, we will stone you. The city was called Tuni. So he went in to preach and they stoned him. Still got the scar over his eye, still got the, the broken finger to show for it, even though this was years ago. And as he fell to the ground bleeding, he had this sacred sense, you know, Jesus, you've given your blood for this village. Now I, I give my blood. I claim this village for Jesus. And, and subsequently, the majority of the village came to the Lord, and the elders that stoned him became the elders of the church. I, I had a meal in the home of one of the pastors there. Well, we were in another city one year called Guntur. And there was a Lutheran pastor. He was Christian in name, but didn't know the Lord. He was, he was just a nominal Christian man. And he did not like the fact that our meetings were where they were. And he didn't like the time they were starting. Everything was fine. We had permits to do all of it. But he wanted us to start later. He didn't want the meetings there. And he told Yesu Padam, and Yesu Padam said, we have a permit to be here. This is when we need to start, etc." So the guy decided to threaten him. And he said, if you try to start your meeting at that time, he said, I will take our sound system and our amplifiers and we will turn our music up as loud as can be. And Yesupadam looked at him and said, I'm willing to die for Jesus. The guy's like, I guess loud music won't stop you. Then he kind of walked away. All right, so much for that threat. We'll turn our music up loud. I'll die for Jesus. What are you going to say? See, look, we measure our lives by, did, did, I go to the, did I go to the extra meeting? And, and look, meet together, be together, be in your small groups, be in your corporate meetings. I'm not speaking against that. But hear me, that's not the measure of your commitment. If you're thinking like that, you still don't have it right. It, it's, like, it's like telling your spouse, well, I come home for dinner three days a week. Marriage is more than that. Jesus' movement requires total commitment. Institutional Christianity, minimal. Here's another characteristic. The Jesus movement is a threat to hell and is hated by the world. Institutional Christianity is an amusement to hell and is honored or ignored by the world. The Jesus movement is a threat to hell and is hated by the world. Leonard Ravenhill used to ask, is your name known in hell? Does the devil take notice of you? Most of you know the story in Acts, the 19th chapter, where seven sons of Sceva decide, a Jewish high priest, they're going to try driving out a demon using Paul's method. And they, they, they ordered this demon to come out of the man in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. There's no such thing as secondhand relationship with God. <laughs> There's no such thing as secondhand anointing. So I, I'm getting from this, Lutherans are institutional Christians. 
and it you need to ask demons whether or not they know who you are. That's how you know. Okay. We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, and the demon speaks through the man and says, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And jumps on him and beats him. That, that's how the devil looks at institutional Christianity. Who are you? I know about Oh, yeah, yeah, because it's all about, inst- yeah, see those seven sons of Sceva. That Those are the institutional guys. That is a total twisting of this text. And again, I, I have to ask the application. Do I need to go and find a demon and ask, hey, Mr. Demon, look at me real quick. Okay. Do you know who I am? <laughs> this is ridiculous. Jesus, I know, I know about his true followers, but who are you? See, when you read through the book of Acts, there's holy upheaval. City after city after city after city, there's holy upheaval. I'm, I'm convinced if you put Paul in our midst today, he wouldn't just have a big TV radio ministry and be a best-selling author. He might do that for a little while, but soon enough he'll be in jail somewhere. Maybe being killed somewhere. Same gospel, same message, same world. Acts 16, there was the accusation, you're throwing the whole city into an uproar. Why? Because they drove a demon out of a girl, and it took away the income of the owners. Acts 17, they were accused of being the people that turned the world upside down. Acts 19, there's a riot. Acts 21 and 22, another riot. The whole city in an uproar there in Jerusalem. Yeah, and yet, the way they did that was by going and preaching Christ. Uh-huh. In the synagogue, preaching Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah, proclaiming themselves as eyewitnesses to his resurrection, calling people to repent, and saying, in Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, read the sermons by the apostles in the book of Acts. They sound nothing like this one. Acts 24, Paul's accused of being a pestilence, literally in Greek. He's accused of being a pestilence, a plague. By other Jews. Acts 21, he's mistaken by a Roman soldier who thinks he's leading a revolutionary movement. Why all the controversy? If it was just a lovely, nice, tame, home and garden religion. Again, false dichotomy. What made it so that it wasn't lovely and tame was the proclamation of Christ. I'm not hearing that here. Why the controversy? Here, let me, let me tell you something really profound. So profound, I'm going to pause and have a sip of water. You're wondering what I'm going to say. Do you know why Jesus was accused of healing the sick and driving out demons by the power of Satan? Now I'll ask this question sometimes in school and get 20 different great answers. You know why he was accused of driving out demons and healing the sick by the power of Satan? Because he was driving out demons and healing the sick. You're not going to get accused of driving out demons and healing the sick by the power of Satan if you're not driving out demons and healing the sick. You better start getting to it. Why aren't you healing the sick? Get on it. You see, that's the sign of the Jesus movement. Yeah. Uh-huh. You understand? I mean, no one's coming to... To, to me in my ministry and say, are you raising the dead by the power of Satan? Because I'm not raising the dead. Maybe the day will come when I do. That's great. But I, so far, no. 
They're, they're not, they're not coming to this church here and saying, are, are you, are you getting all the people out of their graves in the cemetery by, by demonic power? They're not coming with that accusation because we're not getting people out of the graves in the cemetery. Jesus was accused of driving out demons and healing the sick by the power of Satan because he was actually doing it by the power of God. In other words, there's a reason why in the book of Acts they're accused with with throwing cities into an uproar. Cities were getting into an uproar because they, they were falsely accused of being troublemakers But their message of preaching allegiance to Jesus, the king, was taken as a threat to Caesar. And and they're they're challenging the power structures of the day and the spirit was causing turmoil and uprising. I, I assure you, when there are riots in the city, the police don't go to the nursing home to look for the ringleaders. They don't do that. They know where to go. They, they know where the ringleaders are. They're stirring up trouble. The apostles were falsely accused of being troublemakers in the wrong sense. But Jesus had already said that we would be persecuted for righteousness, that we would be resisted for doing what was right. The Jesus movement is a threat to hell. That's why the Bible is banned in certain countries. That's why the, the Islamic countries just rule with such an iron fist. Someone converts from Islam, becomes a follower of Jesus, their own family can kill them. That's why the Bible's banned by communist countries, or they attempt to ban it. Or it's going to be used, it has to be used in a censored way. Why? Because it's a threat. Jesus' movement is a threat to hell and is hated by the world, just as Jesus was hated by the world. Institutional Christianity is an amusement to hell. You mean like the seeker-driven movement? Is that what you mean by institutional Christianity? That and Lutherans, apparently, yeah. Get a big kick out of our Easter bunnies. Easter eggs. Hey, you're free to have a Christmas tree if you want, but just don't think it's going to chase any demons away. Yeah, I don't know anybody who thinks that. It's weird. Understand what I'm saying. Institutional Christianity is either ignored by the world or is honored by the world. It's institutional Christianity and its broad acceptance and its, and its wonderful traditions. The world likes that sometimes. It doesn't make the world uncomfortable. It doesn't convict the world of sin. It does, doesn't tell the world it's going to cost you something. About the most attention institutional Christianity gets by the world is when it becomes exposed as being hypocritical and then it just brings mockery to the name of Jesus. Hypocritical. Two more. Hypocritical. The Jesus movement. <laughs> Kept pressing the wrong button. Hypocritical like, you know, Benny Hinn and his uh, ripping the poor off and the pros- using the prosperity gospel to ingratiate himself. Uh yeah, is that what you mean by institutional Christianity? Just asking. Utilize buildings and programs, but it's not dependent on them. Institutional Christianity cannot exist without them. The Jesus movement can utilize buildings and programs, but it's not dependent on them. Institutional Christianity cannot exist without them. Right now, Today is October 9th, 2005. One of the great pressing needs with our school, our congregation, our missions organization, the work that we're doing, the ministry base that we have, one of our great pressing needs is our own facility. 
One of our great pressing needs is a building through which we can, we can do lots of different things as, as a Jesus revolution base. And I'm all for buildings. And as God provides us with one of our own, we want to use it and fill it and wear it out for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God. And, and there are plans and strategies that we have, and in that sense, certain programs. But if suddenly we're scattered out of buildings, and if suddenly we can't gather together the way we do, and if suddenly every program is taken away, we just become a threat to hell in a different way. When I say we, I mean to the extent that we are authentic, to the extent we represent a Jesus movement, you, me, any of us. Institutional Christianity can't exist without those things. Everything's built into the program and the structure. You take that away, there's no organic life. Oh, you're describing Hillsong and Saddleback and Joel Osteen's church. Oh, okay. One of the amazing things that happened with us at FIRE, and I am not claiming that FIRE is, is it, and FIRE has nothing institutional in it. I am not making that claim. But it's more closer to the movement than the institution. Yeah, because you're making concerted effort to be not institutional, but movement-based. Got it. But one of the neat things that happened was when we were transitioning and, and, and pioneering this work. Have you noticed that his definitions are as clear as mud, and he is not exegeting any biblical text? He's proof-texting. Yeah, he's touched Scripture a few times, but he's proof-texting, shoehorning the passages that he's ripped out of context into this dichotomy between the institutional versus the <clears throat> the movement. Right, okay. We're going to be moving from Pensacola to, to, to Charlotte. You know what's really sad, though, is, is that if you were to like work through Isaiah, I mean, you could begin to make a difference between people who go through the motions, who... There's religious movement, but there's no faith, kind of like the religion of Cain, so to speak. Um, you know, you know that's one of the things that Isaiah prophesied against. But see, he's not doing that. He's he's not working in those categories. He's working in a very different set of categories. A very the categories he's working in are uh, see Peter Wagner's new wineskin versus old wineskin kind of things. And because we were pioneering and because we had started as a larger school and we're now moving... Now, did you hear that word, pioneering? Did you hear it? Because we were pioneering. I'll back this up just a little bit. Pioneering, that's a N-A-R buzzword. Mm -hmm. The people who pioneer are apostles. Yeah, no joke. You know, when you read enough N-A-R material, you've been around the N-A-R for a while... You you recognize the code term, the code word pioneer, pioneering. Uh, the people who pioneer are apostles. Mm -hmm. Michael Brown is using that phrase for himself. No joke. But one of the neat things that happened was when we were transitioning and, and, and pioneering this work, and we're going to be moving from Pensacola to, to, to Charlotte, and because we were pioneering and because we had started as a larger school and we're now moving forward with a smaller work, we went through a challenging time when we didn't have any money to pay the leadership or to pay the staff. And, of course, we'd pay the staff first if there were funds available. So I met with the school staff, and, and most of them are fairly young, many of them grads, some of them married with little kids. And I said, listen, we don't, we don't have any money right now. It's, you know... Friday is, is, is when the next 
paychecks should be. We don't have any money right now. And uh, I'm always, you know, I'm always expecting breakthroughs. I live expecting breakthroughs. So, you know, I'm expecting breakthroughs. And I'm telling them that. I said, but I don't know where, where money's coming from right now. And I just want to share that with you. I mean, listen, we'll, if you don't have a home, we'll take you in our homes. And we, we've made that commitment as leaders, but we're in this together. But I just want to share this with you and hear your response. So one of the young ladies says, look, we talk about revolution. We signed up for it. This is nothing. Somebody else says, we never get to sacrifice anything here in America. <laughs> you know, for the gospel, what do we get to sacrifice? He said, look, John Lake's ministry, you know, succeeded in Africa. You know, the men had the spirit of martyrdom on them. In other words, they were committed by life or by death to do the work of God. It didn't matter what happened. They just wanted to see Jesus glorified. They said, go without salaries, the least we could do. And, 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 and we just began to watch when, when it was, when it was time for us to relocate. And this is without being able to pay people for the most part and, and without having funds to help relocate people. When God told us to relocate ultimately between our school, our staff, our congregation, our students, we had 300 people relocate. Normally the only time that happens in America is if you have a big company with a lot of money and they'll, they'll get you a better house and pay you a better salary if you move or if you're a cult. <laughs> you got some kind of brain mind control over the people. This was just people feeling, you know, we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And what's amazing is when there was no money coming in, God provided it other ways. And then he just began to teach us, you know, live on my word, not just on bread alone. And now he's meeting our needs and, and things are working strong. And, and we expect him to meet us abundantly and, and allow us to just give and give and be a blessing to others more than we've ever been. But there was something proven in the character of the people. And I said, we're not hirelings. We're, we're in this for the work of the kingdom. We feel we belong to something bigger than ourselves, and we want to make a difference for Jesus. There's something in institutional Christianity where if, if you take away the structure and you take away the building, it has no existence. Here, take the church in China. It's estimated that with a hundred years of missionary work and communist before before the years of communism, a hundred years of missionary work, it's been estimated that there are about nine hundred thousand converts. And then the doors shut, missionaries have to flee, communism takes over. Terrible persecution, church leaders killed, put in jail, believers scattered, having to meet, quote, underground. To this day. And what happens? In 50 years of communism, the estimates are between 80 and 100 million converts. I mean, you, under, you understand this. You know, the devil's, all right, we're going to shut this thing down. You can shut down the outward structures, but you can't shut down the Jesus movement. You cut that thing down. Yeah, um, there are still pastors in the office of pastor in the underground church in China. Uh-huh. It's true. Back faster. You put John Bunyan in prison for going against the, the institutional religion of his day, and he writes outside of the Bible the best-selling, most translated book in history. Whoa. Put Paul in prison. He writes letters that are being read around the world in multiple languages 2,000 years later. Communism shuts the door, and the gospel flourishes. A few more. The Jesus movement lives and breathes the Great Commission. Its goal is to make disciples. 
You may not be getting all this down, but just get the tape, go through it again. The Jesus movement lives and breathes the Great Commission. Its goal is to make disciples. Institutional Christianity is content with good meetings and lots of activity. It's go- mm, Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it, it, again, I just this is this is weird. This is a strange thing here because clearly as a Lutheran, I'm not supposed to care anything about the Great Commission and yet I seem to harp on it all the time. Isn't that weird? And yet I'm part of a church that he would describe and has identified as institutional. Hmm. Who knew? To gain members. You may have membership, but if those members are not disciples, what's the use of it? It, 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 We may have a great-looking work, and I'm all for great numbers. Listen, if if God gives every assembly 10,000 people, and those 10,000 people are disciples with a heart for God, wonderful. And if you meet in the finest building in the community, wonderful. That That's not the issue. And, and in fact, it's a superficial spirituality that makes the outward structure the issue. You know, there, there are people that, that just meet in, in, in houses. And I've got plenty of friends in the house church movement doing an awesome work for God. But but they'll say, you know, the building doesn't matter. You don't need a special building. You can meet in the house. And then they turn it around a few years later and they say, well, the building does matter because if you don't meet in the house, it's not spiritual. You understand it's just superficial spirituality. The physical structure doesn't matter. And then what's better, to meet in a really big house or a really small church building, which is more spiritual? That's not the issue. That's the tangent. That's part of another book that I'm working on. And here's the point I'm making. There's a lot of stuff that looks really good now, but one day it's all going to go up in the fire. There's a question that house church people ask, is your church persecution proof? Meaning, if persecution came, would your people still follow Jesus? You know, Jesus said in in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, the parable of the sower, he he spoke about the seed on shallow ground. And, And when trials and tests or persecution arose, for the word's sake, just like the sun coming out and those plants withered because they had no root. What if we haven't been tested yet? What if trials and tests and persecutions, for the word's sake, haven't arisen yet? Maybe when they do come, we'll find a lot of the structures that look so strong aren't so strong. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 that every man's work is going to be tested by fire. And he could have been speaking particularly of those who are, who are shepherds of the flock and leaders of the flock. Right. He wasn't talking about institutional Christianity. Uh-huh. This This is... This guy is bending scripture to fit these weird categories. Vague and ambiguous they are, you know, and uh, it's just, again, really weird. And called to build the body with the Lord. Everything is going to be tested by fire. Is it going to be wood, hay, stubble? Is it going to be gold, silver, precious stones? What's the use of having something look so great in the eyes of man? One day it's all going to go up in the flames. What's, what's the use of working and laboring and sacrificing for years to have something that's not going to last? So define what would be the wood, hay, and stubble, please. You have people patting you on the back and telling you, well done, but you don't have God telling you, well done. Jesus' movement lives and breathes the Great Commission. Its goal is to make disciples. How can we touch our neighbor? How can we touch people in another part of the world? How can we reach those who haven't heard the message yet? 
I, I was with, with a dear friend, and he was in one of our fire services on a Thursday night, and we were in a time of, of we're, we're always crying out and going after God, but, but this was extra intense, and, and we were, and I was just saying, we gotta break through, there, it's not enough, we gotta break through, there's a dying world, we gotta touch God, and we're, we're crying out, and some of the students and grads were leading us in prayer, and they were weeping and seeking God, you don't always pray like that, but there are times you pray like that. And my friend said to me, I, I couldn't live in that environment all the time. I couldn't live in that environment of, you know, come on, keep going. It's not enough. And I said, hey, we're not beating people down every week. We're encouraging. We're blessing. We're, we're speaking words of life. But come on, the fact is there is a dying world. There is a great commission. There is a job we have. Our job is not just to have a nice life. Jesus didn't save us just so we can have a nice life so our kids can have a better life. He saved us so we can touch this world. He saved us so we can reproduce. We have been born again to reproduce. We live to see disciples. You need to challenge yourself and ask yourself, who have I led to the Lord? Or who in the Lord have I discipled? Or how have my, my prayers been instrumental in seeing disciples? How is my life one way or another involved in the Great Commission? If, if, if the biggest responsibility in my life right now is raising my kids, am I raising holy radicals or just kids that stay out of trouble? Am I raising kids that I'd be happy to see? See, if you're not raising holy radicals, you've been truly institutionalized. Now to the ends of the earth, or do I want them to just stay nearby so they can take care of me? One way or another, we've got to be great commission-minded. Institutional Christianity is satisfied. Woo, wasn't that a good meeting? Of course, everybody knows Lutherans don't do any evangelism. Yet, in certain parts of Africa, yeah, Lutheranism is growing faster than any group. You're just saying, you know. It was a good meeting, but that's not the end of it. I've often said that, that, that the civil rights movement did not grow and did not change our culture because people went to civil rights meetings. They became part of a movement. They went to a meeting and they were inspired to be part of a movement and the oppression and the injustice that they live with day in and day out said we have to bring about change because we can't live like this any longer. And because of that... Yeah, comparing Christianity to the civil rights movement, that's not a good idea. Commitment, sacrifice, change came. We have to have that mentality. We're part of a movement called to bring about change. We want to make disciples. No, we're not called to bring about change. Again, that's an NAR, Transform Society, emphasis. Societies may be transformed, you know, when enough people within a society are brought to penitent faith in Christ. But we're called to make disciples. Yeah, just saying. I've had times of deep holy frustration, especially living in the suburbs lived in the suburbs outside of Washington, D.C., and sometimes would walk the street at night praying, how do I reach my neighbors? Just seemed to be this complacency. Either they, they thought they were okay or they didn't care, and I thought, how are they going to wake up? And I moved from Maryland with, without having a solution to the, to the problem. I mean, one time we saw a breakthrough where we confronted some moral issues, and suddenly God just thrust me forward, and I was on secular TV and secular radio and the local newspaper attacking what we were doing, and suddenly neighbors talking and open door and sharing the gospel and so on. And, and that, was, that was the only time there was just a, a breakthrough for a little while. You say, I, I can't live like that, but that's the reality. That's the reality that there are people bound next door and the price has been paid for them and we haven't touched them because we're more concerned with our own lives. 
We're more concerned with our well-being. We're more concerned with self-preservation than being obedient to Jesus. Institutional Christianity is content with good meetings, lots of activity, keep everybody busy. You know, just like a little kid. You know, they want ice cream. I want ice cream. Hey, you want to play with this and distract them? We get. To- yeah, you mean like, yeah, Saddleback, Willow Creek, yeah, Lakewood, places like that. Sure. With lots of activity, just like little kids, and we forget about why we're really here. Institutional Christianity is content with good meetings and lots of activity. Its goal is to gain members. Just a couple more and I'm done. The Jesus movement scorns the praise of man and lives for the praise of God only. Institutional Christianity thrives on human accolades. Does the word tell us to have a good reputation with those on the outside? Absolutely. Does the word tell us to live in such a way that unsaved will look at our lives and glorify God? Again, these the dichotomy between institutional Christianity and the movement. It's not a biblical dichotomy. That day, absolutely. Does the word tell the wife of an unsaved man to, to be a model of a spirit to win him even without words? Absolutely. Does the word tell us to live at peace with all men as much as it lies in us? Absolutely. Does the word tell us that, that a good name is better than riches? Absolutely. I am not talking about being obnoxious, self-righteous, contentious, and, and thinking that we're being holy. Some, some of the most unconsecrated people that I know or I've met through the years are the ones that think that they're the most holy. And they don't want to hear what people have to say because they're so holy with God. You know, and if, if, you know I, I would tell some of our students that were young, 18, 19 years old, that were going to be going home for like a Christmas break or something like that. And I tell them, listen, when you get home, your parents will not be impressed that you put your hand on a sick person and they, they were healed. They'll be impressed if you make your bed. They'll be impressed if you speak respectfully. They'll, they'll be impressed if you honor them. I, I'm, 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 I, listen, we, we ha- never, ever, ever does Jesus give us a right to be in the flesh. Never does he give us a right to just express everything that's within us without filtering it through the cross, which means death to everything that is ugly and of this world. But we do not live for the praise of men. We just had a tremendous message for a a dear senior statesman in the body, Art Katz, just brought a message to us at fire last week from John 5. How can you believe when you want the honor of men and not the honor of God. It's completely paralyzed. It says about the Pharisees that even though some believed that they wouldn't confess Jesus because they were afraid. Some were afraid of the religious leaders. Some of the religious leaders themselves believed, but they wouldn't speak because of the, because of the others. The Jesus movement scorns the praise of men. Come on. One day people praise you, the next day they attack you. I did an experiment one time because I've got a common name, Michael Brown. So I did an experiment one time. Just wanted to see on the Internet what Michael Browns there were, what other Michael Browns were doing, and what stuff would, would get attached to me. 
So I typed in Dr. Michael L. Brown, and boom, first thing was, was my website. I thought, okay, so that combination identified me first. And then there are other Dr. Michael Browns, you know, Nobel Prize winners and professors of wildlife and this and that and other things. Then I thought, okay, I'll just type in Michael Brown and something spiritual, Jesus. And boom, got to our website. Oh, that's interesting. So I tried Michael Brown, Jewish. Got to our website. Okay, it's interesting. I'm just seeing, you know, people are doing a search where they're going to end up and they're going to be drawn to the materials we have to touch other people with. So then, for fun, I did this. I typed in Michael Brown, prophet, and boom, there's our website. Then I typed in Michael Brown, false prophet, boom, there was our website. <laughs> then, then I tried, I tried Michael Brown, revival, our website, then Michael Brown, counterfeit revival, our website. Human opinion is fickle. I remember Reinhard Bonnke saying to, to our students in Pensacola, he said, I am not moved by criticism because I am not moved by praise. And you live for the headlines, you live for the opinions of people, you're completely handicapped. You live for the latest poll, and now you, you just become a, a, a politician in the bad sense of the word, that you're just posturing yourself so that people will like you. Paul said in Galatians 1, if I yet please man, I wouldn't be a servant of the Messiah. Even though he taught in Romans 15 we should please one another, meaning help one another and, and be sensitive to the needs and desires of others as far as a man-pleasing spirit, you can't do that and serve Jesus. Jesus' movement scorns the praise of man and lives for the praise of God only. Yes, we are accountable. Yes, we are correctable because... Yeah, the, that institutional Christianity. Yeah. Again, we've got to point out, he's not exegeting a text. We're not actually learning a biblical doctrine. These are categories he's made up, he's defining, and his definitions, I just hate to say this, sound eerily in uniformity with major NAR teachings and themes. We continue. We fear God. We, we believe what his word says. We must be teachable. We must be humble. We must be submitted. And those who are not submitted to authority, those who are not teachable, those who are not correctable are in the flesh. I don't care how spiritual and anointed they claim to be. They're in the flesh, and they'll fall one way or another. But we don't live for the praise of people. The ultimate thing we want is God to say, well done. The ultimate thing we want is for the favor of God. We know that some of the choicest servants of God ever used on the planet were completely vilified and ridiculed and mocked in their day and suffered all kinds of abusive stuff to, to this day. The name of Jesus is a curse word in different parts of the world. T to this day, Paul is one of the most hated religious figures in different parts of the world. Question is, do we have the favor of God? Institutional Christianity thrives on human accolades. If people attack, if people criticize, if people don't praise us, we're hurt and we're wounded. Why? Because we're living horizontally, not vertically. If the thing looks good to man and people pat us on the back, it, it, it satisfies that, that fleshly thing. And, and we can live like that all our lives and be pathetic spiritual wimps. I'll say it again. I'm not talking about being arrogant. I'm talking about fearing God. I'm not talking about being independent and contentious. I'm talking about being God-dependent and Christ-like. We do not live for the praise of man. We live for the praise and favor of God. Last point, the Jesus movement makes sense in the light of eternity. Institutional Christianity makes sense if in this life only we have hope. 
You see, in America, there's not a tremendous cross we have to bear. Come on, think of it for a minute. As believers, most of the things that we, we gave up, we're glad that we gave up. I don't sit around thinking, oh, I wish I could huff diesel gas again. Oh, if only I could shoot heroin again. You know, those of you that maybe used to be alcoholics, you don't think, oh, if only I could be an alcoholic again. Those of you that used to be slaves to sexual perversion, you don't think, oh, if only I could be in bondage again. So in so many ways, the things that we don't do are things that we're happy not to do. Yeah, we have to resist and fight the flesh a little, but for the most part, we're, we're pleased to be living the way that we live. And in America, basically, we can go almost anywhere. I mean, unless your goal is to, to be a mafia leader, you know, or, or a high-paid prostitute, or the leader of some Satanist group, you know, something like that, for the most part, almost any career is open to us here in America. You know what I'm saying when I say almost any. You're not going to be an abortion doctor either or a thousand other things. We understand that. But, I mean, you, you could get into politics. You can get in the media. You can get in the sports world. You can get in the business world. It, it's what We can basically have our faith and have our lives, too, to the full. And we can mistake the, the North American mentality, the American dream, and just the, the natural prosperity of our country. Yes, blessed by God, but so much of it, the hand of man as well. We could mistake that for the abundant life in Jesus. We, we could mistake that for things that really matter. We could mistake a victory for the home team for the blessing of God. And, and ultimately, we have to, on some level, be able to identify with what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, when he said, if in this life only we have hope in Messiah, we're of all men most miserable. And we're not particularly miserable, even if it's just this life. Oh, it'll be disappointing if there's no heaven. But come on, how often is eternal life and being with God forever the motivation that keeps you going? Only in times of extreme pressure. Only in times when maybe you've lost everything or you've lost a loved one and you're grieving and you need that hope. For the most part, that's just kind of like icing on the cake. All this and heaven too. One of my friends said in one of his books, you know, when... We preach the gospel in America. We tell people, hey, you're having problems on your marriage, come to Jesus and he'll fix your marriage. Family problems, come to Jesus, he'll fix your family problems. Problems on your job, come to Jesus, he'll bless your work. And, and he does all those things. And maybe throughout this assembly here tonight, you'd raise your hands and say, yeah, those things happen to us. Well, great, wonderful. He said, when we preach in India, we have to tell people, now if you're married and you come to Jesus, your spouse may leave you. If you have a family and you come to Jesus, your family may disown you. If you have a job and you come to Jesus, you may lose your job. The American response would be, then why do it? I mean, that's how carnal we are about it. I, I, I read a report that said that, that Christianity is increasing among wealthy business people. And, and one reason seems to be, it seems to make good sense. It's like a good insurance policy. No guilt, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life if you sign on the dotted line. That sounds like a good deal. You know, what if someone invites you into this company and we say we have constant openings and rapid promotion? Why? Because everyone we promote gets killed. No thanks, I'll find another job. That's the human way of thinking. 
But in the kingdom way, I mean, the, the, the ones that are the most choice servants tend to suffer the most. I, I journaled one time and told the Lord, I, I'll rejoice in the day when they can read my bio, you know, in prison three times for the faith, stoned two times, you know. You know, our, our thing is how much we've done for the Lord. That's our bio. When, when Paul wrote his bio, he talked about how much he suffered for the master. Institutional Christianity makes sense only if this world is, is our only hope. Then have something that is nice and have something that the world likes and have something that doesn't cost anything and have something that, that is honorable in the eyes of those who hate God. If this world is it, hey, enjoy the party. But if this world is important because this world is the vestibule for the world to come, as Jewish tradition says it, if this world is important because this is where we get to honor God and glorify God and make a difference that will be lived out forever and ever and ever and ever, if this world is important because this is where we get to repay our debt to the Master, if this world is important because what we do here will affect what happens forever and ever and ever and ever, then we live with totally different priorities. Then we stand like Stephen in Acts 7 who didn't back down because he wasn't trying to save his life. He was trying to be a witness. Then we can truly say what Paul said for me to live as the Messiah and to die as gain. It requires examination of our lives. It requires repentance. It requires humbling ourselves. It requires coming to the end of our self-dependence and looking to God. And it requires over, over years looking at your life. This is, this is a lifelong process to, to, to grow as disciples of the Master. None of us fully arrive in this world. And again, no group can think they have it except Jesus as our substance in life. Yes, we have Him and are confident of the truth in Him. But, but we don't want to settle in. Institutional Christianity settles in. We want to be part of yeah, so institutional Christianity, it, it settles, it settles in. Yeah. Again, this is all very interesting descriptive stuff, but he, again, he's not exegeting a biblical text. Just Where is he getting these ideas? These are just ideas that seem reasonable to him, apparently. World-changing movement. Whatever the cost, whatever the consequence. I'm going to close and say what it, what it would mean is this. It would be just as real as if we were in a crisis and people were, or our nation was being attacked and every well-bodied person had, had to enlist to fight. Otherwise, the, the women would be raped, our children would be kidnapped or massacred. We, we'd have terrible suffering and lose our independence. And, and people would enlist knowing I may die, but I'm dying for a cause, I'm dying for a purpose. Just with that seriousness, a young wife kisses her husband Goodbye as, as, as he goes off to Iraq, knowing she may never see him again. And, and, and that's just for a war that America debates. We're talking about the kingdom of God. We're talking about eternal life. We're, we're talking about this whole world, this existence, which is so important, just being like a speck in the light of eternity. I wonder how many would he, here would say, I, I want to I be on the front lines of the Jesus movement. Going to give me an opportunity to respond. I, I want to be used. Listen, no one's trying to put you into somebody else's mold. I'm not trying to be you, and you shouldn't try to be me. 
Right. So, you know, clearly all of the uh, institutional churches, they, they, they're not part of the Jesus movement. And only really the charismatics. They're, they're really the only ones who are part of the Jesus. Do you want to be part of this Jesus movement? Okay. It has to be worked out in your own life between you and God based on the Word and the Spirit. And he yeah, nothing I've heard really is a right handling of anything in the Word of God come to condemn and drive you away he comes to convict and draw you near so god is trying to convict me to no longer be a lutheran become a tongue-speaking charismatic and join the um nar i mean sorry the jesus movement the one that comes after the the john the baptist movement is that how that works but i wonder what would happen if five people really signed up wonder what would happen if 10 people or 20 or 50 or 100. What if, what if, uh, what if, you know, what if 100 people signed up? Yeah. Or 500 said, Lord, here I am. Use me. And by sign up, I don't mean sign on the dotted line. I mean, cross the line and say, here I am, Lord, by life or by death. Oh, yeah, we'll have our struggles. We'll have our battles. We'll have our ups and downs. But there's a deep commitment of heart. I will die rather than compromise. I wonder how many here will be part of. Of the Jesus movement. Yeah, I, I found that when I read Scripture, the people who heard about Christ, heard him proclaimed, exalted, preached, him in a saving office, crucified, died, buried, raised again for our sins and for our justification, the people who always had their attention on Christ, they were the ones who were willing to be martyred. Yeah, um, here you, the attention is on me. Do I, do I want to be part of the Jesus movement or not? But I haven't heard anything about Jesus. Stand to your feet with me, please. Thank you, Lord. My goal is not to preach an ear-tickling message or a popular message. My goal yeah, but you haven't preached the word. That's the problem. To speak the truth so that we as God's people can respond wholly to the kingdom. So I'm responding then to the truth you gave rather than the truth that's found in God's word. Got it? My goal is to spread the revolution in Jesus' name. Yeah, he's spreading revolution, all right, against Jesus, clearly. So our master and savior can be glorified. I'm going to pray simple prayer. And after I pray, if you say, God, count me in, Whatever the cost, whatever the consequence, count me in. Here I am, your servant, your son, your daughter. After I say that, I'm going to invite you to come forward, and you just spend time before the Lord. I may just come by and pray for you that God will seal this in your life, but you just spend time. It may be overwhelming. Cue sappy music, emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience. The emotional, there may be zero emotion with it. We're talking about a commitment from the heart. Father. Done. Yeah, I think you get the point. Yeah, that wasn't biblical Christianity, and that was not a biblical message. Those were not biblical categories that he was operating in. And uh, to be honest, I mean, that was just a whole lot of bamboozlement, not a lot of exegesis. And if you are paying attention, we're paying attention to, you know, the subtleties, the kind of the code talk, you begin to think that uh, Michael Brown sounds still a lot like many of the people in the New Apostolic Reformation. Mm -hmm. Strange, that. Yeah, he sounds a lot like Wagner. Yeah, yeah, I think you get the point. 
So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>